3: I'm
4: all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, Lucky Day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? It's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation.
6: This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
4: I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing her. L'hai tu, fedele, la forte mia su una prova, l'hai vista, le bongo, le suo, testo, la sua bellezia, l'incaro, e lo su confesero. Lei ti le gionassia, dulecuna cia, rupe io tu no, tu ne peli, e dalle cova,
8: there Bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. Super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better. <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run, but half the docs were busy overseas with World War One. Today, we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus, well, then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh, super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine The lesson to rely A super bad, transmittable, super bad transmittable super Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus.
2: Old-fashioned radio for a new
4: generation. The time summer program.com
3: The Tom Sumner Program.com
6: The Time Sumner Program.com. Hey welcome back everybody this is the Tom Sumner program and uh, my my guest this hour let me uh reorient my notes here is an award-winning investigative journalist and author her new book is uh, she teamed up with uh, Robbie Weissman to tell his story boy from Buchenwald the true story of a Holocaust survivor and my guest is Susan McClellan she joins me by phone hi Susan welcome to the show
1: thank you so much thank you for having me
6: um i i gotta ask i'm I'm always fascinated by all kinds of uh memoirs and stories coming out of uh world war two and and to some degree the holocaust itself but what put this particular story on your radar and and how did you end up deciding to team up with Robbie to write his story
1: i I I met Robbie through a literary agent who knew of my work and how I work with my subjects. And so the very first moment I connected with Robbie, I just, I knew there was something very special there. I think what really drew me to the story was wanting to write from the perspective of after the Holocaust, where those years that the boys, through Robbie's story, were in France, and how they went from experiencing the worst of humanity to um, the loss of of everyone and the sheer magnitude of all the the deaths, the murders, how they... Translated that into something that allowed them to go on and lead quite meaningful lives, because the vast majority of the Buchenwald boys that went to France did. Um, so that's what really drew me. Is that as a young boy um, or a young teenager at that point? What, what? 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 How was it? How did he get from there to there?
6: How did? The, and, now there were 472 quote boys from Buchenwald. Um, how did they? get out of uh, Buchenwald, and how did they get dubbed the boys from Buchenwald?
1: So when the American forces liberated uh, Buchenwald concentration camp on April eleventh, 1945, they discovered the thousand boys under the age of 18, and were shocked, actually, just shocked. And the survival of those boys, and many did, more than that were killed by the Nazis were the results of the underground at Buchenwald camp that really created a network of protecting and hiding the boys from the Nazis and that's how they ended up surviving and so the old some of the older boys they were protected by the communists at the camp that the communists were political prisoners so some of the older boys went back to their Eastern European countries to get involved in communist move- movements there. But the younger ones of the boys, that included Robbie, um, they languished at the camp Some, I, for nearly two months. They just sat there. No one knew what to do with them. They were beating each other up. They were stealing food from Weimar. They were real thugs. And uh, it, one of the rabbis with the American um, military called the OSE, which is a children's aid organization that was in France at this point. And the OSE had been rescuing and, uh, Jewish children in France during Nazi occupation of that country. And that's how the OSE turned their attention to moving uh, several hundred of the boys, the younger ones of the boys, to France in the attempt to, to make them human again.
6: You know, there are so many aspects to this story, and And if I hop around a little bit, please forgive me. but how did Albert Einstein that's okay. How did Albert Einstein <laughs> end up in this story?
1: <laughs> uh, so the, OSA, uh, that's the acronym for the organization,
6: was originally was
1: founded in Russia to help uh, survivors of the pogroms. And then it moved to Germany. And, of course, during the Nazi uh, rule of Germany, it wasn't safe there. So it moved to um, uh, France, Paris. Uh, Albert Einstein was one of the patrons and founders of the organization.
6: Okay. Um, Can you, without, you know, bumping into any spoiler alerts, can you draw a little bit of a of a line, of a map between Buchenwald and Canada, where Robbie ended up?
1: Ah, okay. So, um, I mean, I should just preface this, that Buchenwald was where uh, the boys ended up last. So Robbie's uh, camp experience was working at a munitions factory for the Germans through much of the war. He was transported by the Germans to uh, to, uh, Buchenwald when the Russians were coming in through the east and the Allies were coming in through the west. Uh, So he was only at Buchenwald a few months, um, but he was in uh, several other camps, including the one attached to the munitions factory where he worked for most of the the Holocaust. Um, So in France, uh, the story sort of starts off with a sort of typical uh, boys, young boys, goofing off and running around and
6: but, being silly. And how did pooping. they? How did they get to France? I, I, I just I get this impression of these these boys in military trucks being driven to France and then just let loose.
1: Okay, so the OJ created uh, homes for them. So there was one home that they began, they stayed in, and they organized a train ride over uh, from Bucamal directly to uh, the the home. And so they were all housed in the same home. And um, I would like to say that, and this is crazy, like it's just crazy, but after liberation, these boys had been wearing the same outfit for sometimes months, if not years. And so the Americans and um, and some of the Jewish people who had survived the Holocaust and were older went in search of clothes for the boys, and they found Nazi youth uniforms. So oh, no. many of the boys transported to France were wearing the Nazi youth uniforms and in fact the train was pulled over at the beginning because the french thought the nazis were coming back and were throwing stones at them so there's very famous pictures of these boys because they wrote with paint they actually had to spend a night somewhere just resting so that the boys that that could speak french or you know could write in yiddish because remember some of these boys hadn't been in school for five six years they went out and they were writing on the the side of the train we are orphans from buchenwald where are our parents to identify to the french but they were not nazis coming back but they half of the boys were wearing and there's a picture in the book of it little nazi youth uniforms
6: more with investigative journalist and author susan mcclellan straight ahead
1: hello darling this is Elvira, mistress of the dark with tom sumner
9: Yo, Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again.
5: So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter, is a doctor. She
0: calls every week. A doctor.
5: I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nussel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
9: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
6: More with investigative journalist and author Susan McClellan straight ahead. How much time was spent in, in France, and and how much, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, rehabilitation perhaps uh, occurred there, and and how did that lead Robbie to then go to Canada?
1: So for me to tell the Canada story will be a spoiler alert. Okay. So I'm not going to say that, okay, but I can say enough. that So when the boys arrived in France, all of the boys, um, there was certainly a huge attempt to see if there was any surviving family for these boys. And it's not like today where we have DNA on file or we've got Internet. This was sending letters back and forth to these different countries, telegraphs, to get identities. And, And it was complicated further by some of these young boys arriving at the camps and their names being Anglicized or, sorry, not not Anglicized, but Germanized, to make them look like communists and not um, Jews, because the Jews would be killed. If the communist child was there, they, they probably had a greater chance of survival. So the names were all wrong. Um, and so uh, arriving in France, that was the first attempt, and there was some. So there was an exodus of some of the boys nearly very close to the beginning who had found relatives and left the Osa. Not a lot, but an, an enough. So with Robbie, I guess the healing experience was very different for each each boy. There was a, a whole cohort of boys that included L I Y L who wanted to return to their faith. They wanted their faith. They wanted the Shabbat. They wanted to pray. They wanted their stories. They wanted to do the the the, the Kaddish to honor the dead. And then there was a large cohort of boys who did not. So those boys were separated. And then there was an attempt to mentor them. So the boys were, Robbie was matched up with a former professor of the Sorbonne who um, had lost his entire family at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And that man, Manfred, became very close to Robbie um, and, and helped him through the journey. So with each boy, it was different, and it was very much catered to them. There was a real sort of gentleness of what's best for each child. I mean, one of the things that the boys were told arriving in France is, don't tell your story, you know, forget about it, move on in your life. And, and Robbie talks about this, but... Uh, the. uh it was realized early on that Robbie did want to talk about it. And so Manfred allowed him to speak and they bonded over sharing of the stories. So I think that was one of the key things with the healing journey for all the boys is that it ended up becoming very much original. Now, of course, in Robbie's story, without giving any spoiler alerts, is his story becomes even more phenomenal because serendipitously he meets his own relatives he didn't even know about, um, an aunt and cousins in France, and one of the richest women in all of Europe wanted to adopt Robbie. And in fact, went, you know, he's come from a very small little shuttle in Eastern Europe, and now all of a sudden he's staying in a grand apartment that's next to the Rothschild's apartment. He's going to the first Cannes Film Festival. He's going to operas. He's going out on her barge in Paris and having lunches with famous actors and actresses he thinks there was Edith Piaf was there so this is like
6: a Dickens novel
1: yeah (laughs) but it's true it's all true
6: that's what that's what makes it uh, such a great story what went into uh, was it was it planned to write it and publish it for middle grade readers and and how was that decision made
1: uh, well, when, son, when Robbie would speak, he hasn't, of course, during COVID and his health issues now. Uh, but he would be lecturing and speaking to high schools and middle schools all over North America. And um, and I was when I would stay at his house, I would read these letters. Um, thousands of letters, and most from young people uh, being touched by his story, and so we all felt it, I, I think it was just like a, a non question that the book would be a young adult for them uh, because they wanted the story and of course, the young adult market uh, you have an adult market there too more young adult more adults read young adult books um, than say a book like this, a memoir um, saying to a young Middle schooler, why don't you read this? Um, and we really wanted that. We wanted to, you know, an attempt to get this on school curriculum, um, and and really I give a book to the people that have listened uh, to Robbie over the years. And I also love writing for that age category, even though I, I write adult books too, because there are change makers, right? There are there are youth. They're the ones that can actually. Uh, have the fire to do something when they read stories like this to say we want change. We uh, don't want to have this happening anymore.
6: You know, it's it's interesting because I notice a lot of times the books that are targeted for young adult and, and uh, teen readers tend to be about teens. You know, people their age that they can relate to what they yes. went through and so on. And, the, and these stories are very often very appealing to that audience mm-hmm. but it seems funny continuing to refer to robbie even though he starts out as a young boy as robbie because he's in his 90s now
1: yes he's, he's turned 90 in february yeah and, <laughs> and, but we end the book you know when he comes to canada which was 17 so can you imagine like a 17 18 year old and 17 coming to the united states all by themselves I know lots of youth do that, That from the majority of readers, they're going to go, what?
6: So, but that's yeah. not as uncommon as it sounds today. No. There no, were a no. lot. And and of course, really, when you think about it, it's not as uncommon today as it should be when you look to the American Southern border. I know. Yeah, no, for sure.
1: and And here too, in Canada as well. Yes.
6: Um, and and that's one of the things that makes this uh, this story uh, um, again. I, I use the word appealing to young readers um, because they have questions about how, how do how do kids end up on their own wandering around in what to them is a foreign country.
1: Yeah, I mean that was certainly. Having read all the letters, not all of them, there were too many, but having read so many of the letters of what young people were sending Robbie, I just, they want to know these stories. And um, certainly Robbie's story is very much about resiliency and finding meaning in life again. And Robbie, I know, hopes that's what other people take away. You know, when he talks, he talks about. Find something in your life to be appreciative of. Uh, just anything and, and appreciate that. Everything that you do have, look to what you do have, not what you don't have, and just sort of pivot life from there. And Robbie talks about that. Um, and, and the young readers really identify with that sort of message because they're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with economic and work. And students' um, academic uncertainties. I mean, they're dealing with now the virus. They're dealing with conflict still in the world. Uh, so it's it's how how do we how do we build resilient children that can handle the ups and downs and bumps of life?
6: And and that's the importance of telling stories uh, from that long ago, because now the memories of World War Two are fading as the participants are dying off. Yes. And there's I
1: think Robbie's one of the last remaining up boys.
6: Yeah, there's um there's we're losing a connection to that period of time and it's it's mm-hmm. becoming like way back in the olden days. Yeah. How relevant are those stories from way back in the olden days um, to the contemporary uh, um, audiences?
1: Well, I think there's a number of things. Uh, I think on an emotional point of view, our entire evolution is based on the evolution of cultures and countries. And so, We are who we are today because collectively we've experienced some really heroic, 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 oh my gosh, I've had too many interviews today, horrific experiences. Um, And so we have to know where we came from, all of us have come from. And, you know, on a much more practical point of view, and this is what gets Robbie still really angry, is um, we are repeating the past. So we need to have these stories. We need to be reminded that, you know, and, and, and don't start with the Holocaust. Right before the Holocaust was the Armenian genocide. You know, we have had genocides and the elimination of the the strive of our collective humanity to remove the other, the, the people we don't know, the people we feel threatened by since the beginning of time. And, you know, Speaking of Einstein, wasn't it him that said, we cannot solve today's problems through the same way, But it that, that quote, through the same way we did in the past. You know, we, we need to learn from these stories. Well,
6: trying that, I, I think one of, one of his quotes was uh, uh, something to the effect of uh, trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results is uh, yes. the epitome insanity. of... Insanity,
1: the definition of insanity. Yeah, yeah. thank
6: you. Yeah. And yeah.
1: Th- that's, and and that's so... one
6: example. I'm not sure that's the quote you were going for, and I think I, I was starting to, to recognize it a little bit as you were uh, <laughs> try, trying to come up with it. But um, it's it's important to look back and know where we came from To really identify where we where we want to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, and not repeat the past, which we're seeing. We've seen it, you know, at the end of World War II. They said never again, never again. And since then, how many genocides have we had? So we are doing it over again.
6: Yeah, another quote, and I have no idea who to attribute it to, but. You know, experience is uh, being able to recognize a mistake when we make it again.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
6: And and that's why stories Um, like this are so important. And and books like yours, um, Susan, really bridge history. Because we won't have the Robbies in the world in a very short bit of time. No. To share no. it from a, a, a first-hand experience.
1: Yes and also seeing that you know there wasn't that much difference between Robbie and you know someone at the same age in Kalamazoo right like it's the same wants and needs and strive to live is there among all of us and maybe if we can start seeing that as opposed to what we think are differences we can hold each other better and hold each other's stories better um and i think that's one of the things that these books help do is say you know this happened nearly 76 years ago uh but that boy's not that much different than you um what can you learn from him and you know uh, that sort of thing so i think there's there is relevance
6: there Susan Publishers Weekly said uh, Weissman's resistance to and eventual acceptance of help and healing makes for a compelling story of recovery from extreme trauma. Um, yeah. As I'm reading about the book, the word that that comes up that that I'm really fascinated by is forgiveness. How does that yeah. factor into? A story as as painful and um, uh, seemingly hopeless as the story that started out for these boys
1: well i you know I'm not Robbie, so I can't tell you what forgiveness really really means for him. Part of the forgiveness with his story was the anger he held toward a family member without giving out um, uh, too many spoilers. So that forgiveness I can speak about, which was really turning his attention again to appreciation. Um, And, you know, when Manfred said to him, what would your parents want for you? That was the real turnaround where he began to put that anger and that rage somewhere and think, what would they want from me? And live for that sort of memory as opposed to allowing the rage and the anger to overpower him. That's the forgiveness part that I, I can speak to from Robbie um, through the book. In terms of other forms of forgiveness, I, I can't speak to that. Like, did he forgive the to, to, to this? I'm not, I don't know. I
6: honestly had never asked him that question. Susan, in in writing this book, is is it um, completely from Robbie Weissman's point of view about his personal experiences and what he went through and following him in his travels uh, from then until now? um, Yes. And how much research did you have to do to accompany that story? well robbie's
1: memory i mean we started five years ago so his memory was uh better than his wife gloria um instrumental like uh i would spend weeks uh, at a time out there and gloria was with us the whole time um, sort of interjecting here and there, oh, Robbie, it happened this way. Oh, no, it's this person's name. And even my pronunciations of words, it would take like five minutes. She goes, Susan, it's pronounced this way. And I just, I love them both. So Gloria was instrumental in helping Robbie with the, the personal narrative over, uh, you know, 75 years. Uh, Dr. Robert Krell was very important. He's a psychiatrist that founded the Holocaust Center with Robbie and has known him for more than 45, 50 years and knows the story too. So I, uh, Dr. Krell was instrumental. Uh, of course, I, I had to do fact-checking for this story. So I worked with Dr. Kenneth Walpfer at the University of Michigan. He's retired, but he's researched the Buchenwald boys' decades and knows more information on them than anyone um and so i I came down to your state and and worked there for a while um with dr waltzer and um, then i also got some of the original files from the jose in paris Uh, so uh, and, and people read it so every line of that book has been okayed by a number of people historians and Robbie and his wife and family and also family members like at the time not anymore he had cousins and the Brant family uh who wanted to adopt him uh their their sons and daughters and granddaughters were still alive so I was able to fact check some of the stories through them
6: Susan I mentioned when I first um Introduced you that you're an award-winning investigative journalist and author, and you've written several books. And as we get close to the end of our time, and and I can't believe how fast it's going, and we've only scratched the surface of this story. Again, the uh, book is called "Boy from Buchenwald: The True Story of a Holocaust Survivor," and it tells the the story of uh, a particular individual, Robbie Weissman. But Susan, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Of course, we've been talking about the book, and the book is a great place to start. But where can people find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future?
1: Well, I have a website. It's um, smccolland.com, S-M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N-D.com. And i got a link to Robbie's book on there, and certainly if anyone reaches out through the website and wants to speak with Robbie, I can I can try and facilitate something um, if he's feeling up to it. I know he would love to. He loves talking to people, and especially since where he is living right now is still in lockdown, I think he'd love to talk to uh, people, particularly some young people.
6: Well, feel free to send him my way, because I think he'd be uh, very interesting to talk to, and and I'd love okay. to. Okay. I, I'd love okay. to visit with him, and as 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 you well know, probably better than most, um, people who have these stories are not going to be with us forever. No,
1: no, uh, no. Are we still taping? Yes. Uh, no, I definitely will connect you with with Robbie.
6: Okay. Well, we'll. Uh, We'll leave it there for now, but Susan, thanks so much for spending this time with me and and sharing Robbie's story and your experience writing this book with our audience today, and keep up the good work.
1: Well, thank you so much for having
6: me. Thank you. Take care. Again, that was award-winning investigative journalist and author Susan McClellan. She teamed up with uh, the survivor of the uh, Holocaust To write his story, Robbie uh, Wiseman is his name. The title of the book is Boy from Buchenwald, The True Story of a Holocaust Survivor. And uh, Susan has um, had writing appear in the Sunday Times Magazine, the Times London, The Guardian, Al, Newsweek, Daily Beast, as well as numerous other magazines and newspapers Her critically acclaimed books include Bite of the Mango, Uh, and Every Falling Star. They've been published in more than 35 uh, countries, and she's had stories adapted into documentaries for the CBC and BBC's Panorama. And as she mentioned, you can find out more at smcclelland.com. Susan McClellan, thanks again. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. (music) ¶¶
8: Super bad transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad transmittable, contagious awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better <coughs> Now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the dots were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it then we're all gonna die If we don't do it then we're all gonna die So I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh super bad transmittable contagious awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine the last until July. transmittable Super bad transmittable <laughs> super Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus.
2: Old-fashioned radio for a new generation
4: Unknown comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner show right now. And now, and now too, and even now.
7: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part.
6: Joe Biden from the Blue Lions.
0: Dan Thurling.
9: Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondra. Actor, comedian Jonah Pote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow.
6: State Senator Jim Ananick Comedian Brian McCree.
4: The unknown comic.
6: Mark Farner. And, Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh,
4: it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't
6: read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that.
4: Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You It's you, <laughs> like having coffee at the kitchen table with you.
6: Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com.
10: you might hear if you were slowly following a jazz band down the street in New Orleans, heading for a funeral.
3: Just a closer one. Ah mm-hmm. uh-huh.
10: Umbrellas, wearing shorts, following the dance down the street. And you get in line and follow them too, because when they leave the church, they're still marching slow and quietly, and they all get to the graveyard. And then you discover one of the other unusual things about New Orleans, and that's that in the city of New Orleans, they don't bury people. Didn't know that, huh? Or did you? You didn't know that. Well, they don't. Because you see, New Orleans is between 3 and 11 feet below sea level. And if you tried to dig a 6-foot hole to bury somebody, you got a minimum of 3 feet of seawater. Folks feel kind of funny about doing something like that, you know? So in New Orleans, everybody is buried in vaults. But the minister still says ashes to ashes and dust to dust, just as though he were going to be putting them in the ground. And about that time, the family starts to boohooing because they're feeling kind of sad because they've lost their dearly departed. And then the minister reminds you that you're not supposed to cry at a funeral. Did you know that? You're supposed to rejoice. You're supposed to rejoice that another poor soul has escaped this veil of tears. (laughs) And if you can't rejoice because another poor soul has escaped this veil of tears, At the very least, you can be glad it wasn't you. (laughs) About that time, the minister signals to the undertaker, and he hands flowers out to the family, and he signals to the trumpet player. And then you find out why everybody follows a jazz funeral as far as it takes. Sounds sort of like this. Back, huh? Yeah.
2: All right. Yeah. I want to hear your mandolin again.
6: Yeah, it was an appropriate start and an appropriate end to this Memorial Day edition of the Tom Sumner Program, paying tribute to those (coughs) who gave their lives for this country. I want to say thanks to the guests on the show today. seemed kind of appropriate uh, for this particular day. Uh, Susan McClellan, the author of Boy from Buchenwald. And uh, before that, we heard from Brian Reese from... uh, V.A. Claims Insider, and we started off this morning with the National Commander of the American Legion, Bill Oxford. And that Smoking George winners let me know it's time to head on out to the deck and do some barbecue, but uh, make sure that before you enjoy the cookout and all the fun things that we do on Memorial Day, that you remember what the day was for. And I'll be back tomorrow with uh, another edition of the Tom Sumner Program.